and welcome back to Meditation for our podcast on episode 111, The Calm. I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. And with us for this podcast, <laughs> we have a, a special guest returning, actually. She joined us last spring for, which episode was it? It was the one with the funeral, Bellamy's backpack. Yeah, it was... It was the one with the funeral in Bellamy's backpack, whichever episode that was. <laughs> right, <maybe? laughs> yeah, something like that. Anyway, you will all remember fondly uh, Elizabeth. Welcome back, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us again. Hi, everyone. I'm Elizabeth, like they said, and I am a historian slash writer in Minnesota. We are all super excited to talk about this episode, particularly... Claire is just like bursting with cane feels, just like about to explode with cane feels. Uh, and Elizabeth is about to explode with Bellamy and Raven feels. Right. And I'm I'm just sort of like, I'm not really going to explode with anything, but I'm very happy. <laughs> no, you're going to explode with Finn Rage. Didn't you say that? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yes. Yes. I am brimming with Fim Rage. But I mean, that's just like a day every day for yeah. me, basically. That's just a day ending a day for Aaron. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so we are we are going to start up on the arc so that Claire does not explode. And also because she's going to have to probably duck out before we're done. So we have to make sure that she gets all this out. Claire, so why don't you like get us rolling on what's happening on the arc and the way that it makes you feel? <laughs> Oh, okay. I have many feels and I have many thoughts. (laughs) I watched the episode last night, but I watched it after like half a bottle of wine and a huge whiskey. And I was at the beach with my friends and we had just watched The Room, which is like sort of famously the worst movie of all time. So I was in a very strange headspace (laughs) when I watched it. So So I did watch the arc scenes again today just to make sure that I was like, did not forget anything in my drunk, delusional, whatever. We talked about this a little bit the last couple of podcasts that we're really in that sort of home stretch towards the finale where like everything is accelerating, every storyline's really sort of firing on all cylinders. You know, this is another fantastic episode, but as we mentioned last time, this is our first chance to kind of check back in with the arc storyline post Diana Signe. So like watching this the first time, you know, if you didn't know what's happening, we go the whole previous episode without having any idea what happened to Abby, what happened to the Ark, who's alive, who's dead, what's going on up there. All we know is what the people on the ground know, which is that they saw this explosion and then all communication went out. So this is sort of our first chance to kind of pick back up again the threads of that storyline. And one of the things I really love about this episode, this is probably one of my like all time favorite Kane episodes. I would say Cabby episodes because they're snuggling at the end, which we'll get to. But Abby's like barely. In it. <laughs> she has like a yeah. line and it's not even audible. I mean, I always forget, like, not only do we not know what happened to her through the whole previous episode where we don't get any arc stuff, but we don't know even what's up with Abby through like almost this entire episode, too. Yeah, like, it's really like almost two full episodes. Exactly. And they very carefully like. Nobody mentions her specifically. Like when Jaha and Kane and Sinclair and Wicker kind of strategizing about like, you know, there might be survivors. Somebody could have manually locked this door. You can sort of feel everybody thinking like, maybe it's Abby, maybe it's Abby, but not sort of necessarily saying it out loud. And so that suspense really does carry through until, you know, he sort of turns her over at the end in the service bay. And it's a sort of like beautiful, dramatic, like, she's okay, but Clark doesn't know. Oh my God, very dramatic moment. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I really, really love 
about this episode is that it gives us a whole A story on the arc with Kane, where he's paired with a character who we have not ever met before, who brings out this completely other side of him. It's such a huge kind of turning point episode in his character evolution, the way they craft pairing him with Wick. Having not covered any of season two and Wick having been sort of like shoved gracelessly offstage going into the beginning of season three, <laughs> it is possible that this may be our first and last chance to ever talk about Wick. And I do actually have a lot of thoughts about Wick. Um, most people in the fandom probably know that in the hiatus between season two and season three, Steve Talley was let go from the show for basically being like a racist asshole on Twitter. So him being kind of a human trash barge aside, <laughs> and also that in season two, there are legitimate, I think, things that are worth discussing about kind of how his relationship with Raven plays out that I'm not super comfortable with. So, so both of those negatives aside, this wick, I really like, and I feel a deep sense of resentment towards <laughs> Steve Talley for being an asshole for <laughs> taking this away from me. <laughs> I just absolutely love the dynamic between the two of them. I love the kind of new side of Kane it brings out. Like, this is the first time we've seen a version of Kane who's kind of stripped down of all artifice. Like, this is the first time we've seen him genuinely smile. Like, he kind of picks up on Wick's banter and gives it back to him. Seeing him encouraging somebody else, trying to, like, help somebody else. Wick brings out this whole other dynamic in Kane, where, you know, Kane has been a politician the entire time we've known him. And this is really the first time that we see, and it begins with Wick, the version of Kane that becomes a leader who people voluntarily follow. Like a person mm -hmm. who, through the choices that he makes and the things that he does and the way he kind of puts himself on the line first, like this is sort of the next big step in his evolution that really begins after the culling where we see him kind of rewriting his own internal sense of like what does it mean to be a leader and kind of re-examining so many of the things that he learned from Jaha and that sort of departure from Jaha's style of very like emotionless and analytical leadership that we've really seen Kane kind of espousing the whole rest of the show this is the first time that we see him doing something because it needs to be done and other people choosing to follow him and it starts with you know him and Wick roaming the like creepy ghost town corridors hunting for survivors which is just very very beautifully shot and extremely sinister and we don't have any idea at that point you know what they're gonna find or who all else is alive we don't know about jaha or sinclair or anything like that so him just kind of trucking along trying to gather up the last group of survivors trying to figure out how to get them to safety the way we watched him sort of putting together piece by piece what it means that the air flipped back on that somebody's alive in earth monitoring him staying behind trying to send everybody else to safety while he tries to like single-handedly pull that entire wall of welded metal down and you're like <laughs> oh marcus <laughs> bless your heart <laughs> like no 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 but i was also thinking as i was watching it too i mean i think i mean we have that like nice little moment with jaha where jaha sort of where he sort of quotes jaha back to him mm -hmm. someone very wise told me that you have to know when to break the law too. And it was one of those, like, it's so funny now after three seasons of like crazy Jaha, you know? Right, like, right. To be reminded like, oh, right. Like he was really, yeah. you know, he was like <laughs> this legitimate sort of level-headed leader guy. But I think the other 
uh, like this is kind of another way that I think Abby is really, really present in this episode without ever being named is like the other huge difference between I felt like watching this Kane and this episode versus like the first and second episode is like, you know, Wick is standing there saying to Kane what Kane was saying to Abby at the beginning of the season. Like, you don't know that these kids are alive. Mm-hmm. You don't know that they're alive. You think that maybe there might be some people alive. There's some circumstantial evidence that might indicate that some people might have survived. But you're taking a huge risk in, you know, assuming that and trying to get to them versus going with the most probable route to survival. And Kane is in the Abbey position going like, I have faith that someone survived and I'm going to like go balls to the wall, you know, mm-hmm. like try to tear down like wreckage with my bare hands in order to get to them, you know? And so you can see that's like such an Abby moment, you know, like oh, it's yeah. such a transformation for Kane to sort of be put in that position and be sort of taking what had been Abby's position against someone who's like standing there, like giving him the kinds of arguments that he would have made. Like, I don't even know how long have they been on the ground? Like a month Yeah, um, is the first season. It's like a month ago, you know, he would have like been saying the opposite thing. Well, and that it comes from what he says to Wick is, I won't let anyone else die because of me. Right. It's this it's this really sort of beautiful combination of, I th- like, I think you're totally right, of him sort of, the shift between him being shaped primarily as a leader by Jaha's influence, evolving into being shaped increasingly more and more by Abby's influence. And that really comes to a head much more in seasons two and three. But I think you're right. I think it begins as early as this here because Abby had faith and she was right. Yep. He's learning to trust that other side of himself. He's learning to trust, you know, different ways of being a leader. But I think it's also, you know, because because he's Kane and everything has, you know, at its core some degree of self-flagellation, you know, in all of these decisions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The weight on him is different than it would be on Wick if they, you know, if they left people behind... And it turned out that there were survivors and they didn't end up getting a chance to save them. Yeah, like he's thinking about the calling and it's sort of like the problem with the calling was that he didn't have faith and he pushed forward and, you know, sort of set aside the possibility. He called the play too early. Right, exactly. So he's trying to, you know, he's sort of like seeing his lack of faith as the thing that killed, you know, 320 people. And he's trying to sort of atone for that. And and he's also, you know, it's this is one of the first chances that we really see the choice that he makes to sort of put himself on the line as collateral against that bet, essentially. You know, like, if something mm-hmm. goes wrong, he's the one that will die and Wick will get everybody else to safety, but he's willing to take that chance right. just to see if there's somebody else alive down there. It's very Bellamy in season two, quite frankly. Very much it so. It is, yes, yes, exactly. Even even down to, like, crawling through the vents. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good point. It's sort of like, wow, this, this show has, like, a very particular way that it has its male characters redeem themselves. Right? Yes. Through, like, <laughs> asshole moves in the past. Step one. And it crawl involves through vents. vents. Crawl through vents. Say, I won't let anyone else die for my mistakes. That's that's another Bellamy line. Yep. That's another big one. Another big one. Yep. Yep. <laughs> No wonder Kane sees himself in Bellamy so much. I know. <laughs> they are in some ways exactly the same person. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love how in a storyline that is very simple, which is basically just like Kane walks through the ship hunting for survivors, finds Jaha, and they like begin the process of trying to figure out what the hell to do about everybody else in the ship. Like not a lot of massively significant 
plot happens, except that we establish that first Kane and then Jahan Sinclair and then Abby are still alive. But like, there's nothing, there's nothing like deeply intricate in this plot, but it really does a remarkable amount of character work. And it's really, you know, when I was watching it last night, I was sort of trying to watch it through the eyes of like, when I watched this the first time, like without trying to be sort of super conscious of all of the things that happen after. And, you know, like that little... The Kane and Jaha moment is so lovely and it's such a great reminder of how integral Sinclair is. And I just really love this iteration of Wick so much. And it's like, so a lot of this, it was sort of like, well, now, now it obviously is very different because now it's like Jaha's crazy and Wick presumably, I guess, died in Prime Fire and Sinclair was taken <laughs> from us horribly way too soon. So a lot of this was I a little bit now. Every time I see Sinclair now, my poor heart just like, breaks oh my god yeah he's not in this one a lot but he has some really great moments and it's nice to have him sort of like you know it's a great like team adult storyline it's like kane and sinclair and jaha and wick teaming up together trying to sort of figure out what to do not even beginning to address the question of what happens next you know just sort of like how do we figure out who's still alive and get through today but it's a nice little underutilized combination of characters when you sort of bring Sinclair into the mix and then throwing in the wild card of Wick who is like Mr. Sasspants you know right can I have your shoes if you die <laughs> I love yeah. I love that exchange so so much and then and then Kane's like they're much too stylish for you. and I'm just like oh these bros, I love it. <laughs> I was talking last night with Brittany about this, and it was like, the culling was when I really started to be like, oh, okay, this, like, there's more to this king guy than I thought, and he's really interesting. And I think the moment that I genuinely was like, I am, like, irrevocably in love with you, and there was, like, no going back, was really in this episode, and it was like, this is the first time that we get to see him be funny. <laughs> it's like this tiny little moment. It's just like a whole other side of him. You know, this sort of like bantering in the face of like potential sudden death. Wick as sort of a one-off. In terms of season one, like this is sort of all the Wick that we get. And he really does, I think, kind of an extraordinary amount of bringing out some new textures in Kane and, and sort of being the convenient right character in the right place at the right time in ways that don't feel sort of clunkily expositional. Like it is helpful that the first person that Kane stumbles upon in his, you know, hunting for survivors is somebody who is an engineer and can like fill in crucial pieces of information to kind of help him figure out what's happening but it never feels ham-handed you know like it doesn't feel like oh conveniently i stumbled upon somebody who can tell me exactly why the co2 scrubbers came back on you know it's just like this is like a guy (laughs) who needs help that he kind of recognizes because he's friends with sinclair and right wick feels like a character not like an exposition device yeah yeah He kind of has a thing that I feel like is maybe a little bit in some ways where they try to go and don't always get there with with Finn. Like the wisecracks and the like, I deal with stressful situations by just like cracking jokes continuously. But there isn't anybody in the arc storyline that has that kind of vibe. And so just having somebody come in who you put next to Kane and Jaha, like the world's two most serious men. (laughs) And he's just like Mr. One-liners. Like it's really remarkable, I think, how much he kind of 
flips the tone of the arc storyline which always tends to be the heaviest and the most humorless and the most serious because the kids are sort of where like when funny things happen it's like Jasper and Monty you know or it's like Murphy yeah, being a dick yeah or it's like Joby nuts you know and they're all yeah yeah high or whatever exactly and, yeah, yeah it's some yeah. like wacko exterior circumstance but there's very little comedy on the arc <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, none of those people are, like, really funny. Yeah, the best you get is, like, grim sarcasm from Abby. Exactly, yeah. To be fair, like, they might be funny, but there's just, like, absolutely nothing to be funny about for, like, yeah. most of what's happening on the arc. Exactly. Well, and they're all adults, so you don't That's, have, yeah, like, exactly. Jasper and Monty being like, we all might die, but who gives a shit? Let's get drunk. Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah They're exactly. like, we all might yeah. die. What are we going to do about like, it? We're all at least in our 30s. <laughs> Let's deal with this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The thing to me that's interesting that the way that like Wick is great with Kane is, you know, it kind of like reveals this unexpected facet of Kane's, which is that he's kind of a chameleon, you know, like Kane kind of is able to adapt to the people around him, you know, so so it's like sort of surprising to to kind of like learn over the course of this episode and the show, like Kane is who he was at the beginning of the series, partly because he was so not to say sort of like taken over by Jaha, but that like that was just like the context, you know, like he was sort of adapted to Jaha, but like you know he sort of he like he kind of rises up to match you know Wick's tone and his jokiness, you know, his sort of wit. It's interesting because when you think about, like, over the course of the series, that sort of explains one reason perhaps why Kane winds up being such a good diplomat or ambassador later on with the Grounders. Like, he has that sort of ability to adapt to the sort of, like, idiom and the tone and the the style of exchange of the people that he's with and kind of, like, understand their point of view. So it's sort of interesting to see that emerge in his character. You're totally right. I hadn't thought of it in that exact context. But yeah, it's, I like him so much in this episode because he does sort of absorb, you know, Wick fires off a one-liner and Kane fires back a sort of quippy retort. It's like he's responding to the tone and the dynamic of that relationship. And we see him do the same things later over the course of the show with so many other different characters. You know, we see him being the first one that really, even before Clark does, can see the grounders as potential allies, you know, who, like, builds relationships with them. And long before Abby the mom can, that he has the ability to, like, see the kids as adults, you know, like, he can kind of meet people where they're at. And I think, you know, prior to this point in this season, we've seen him with the sort of, with the notable exception of his kind of, like, breakdown after the culling, you know, we've really seen him fulfilling a pretty prescribed role where like you said like not just that he's sort of he's under Jaha's influence but he's also in a situation for which like the rules are very clear you know the exodus charter is clear his job is clear everything is clear everything is black and white and that's why Abby makes him crazy he's like an exodus charter literalist right like any situation that you could possibly encounter what to do about it is prescribed in this handbook. And I think what is kind of fascinating about where we find him when we come back to him again at the beginning of this episode is that because they are in a situation for which there is no way they could possibly have been prepared, like all of the rules have sort of been thrown out the window. And so this is the first time that we really see him have to figure out like, I'm on my own now. What do I do? Like, there's no Jaha to tell you what to do. There's no Exodus Charter to tell you what to do. There's no rule book. 
if the whole sort of plan of humanity was basically like keep everyone alive until you can take them down on the exodus ship to earth now hack the ship is dead and the exodus ship is gone so it's like what the fuck do you do so it's the first time we've really gotten to see him have to figure out for himself in response to those circumstances without any other kind of exterior you know guiding forces positive or negative like how to be a leader and so it's very simple and it just sort of starts with like find everybody who is alive start with that it really sort of brings out i think this new side of him because it's like this is completely stripped down i mean even visually too you know like he doesn't have his jacket on like everyone's in their in their shirt sleeves everybody is like rumpled and sweaty you know like no uniform no formality even just the way that he talks to jaha where they're just sort of talking person to person and it's not like counselor to chancellor it's like all the sort of layers of protocol and uh, you know bureaucratic systems and military training and all the stuff that sort of made him behave in these very regimented codified ways because he existed within this infrastructure for which there was a way to handle every situation that somebody else had already decided for you and you're just kind of carrying these things out it's always really fascinating when you take a character like that and throw them into a situation where it's like, oh, what you going to do, Kane? <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> like, no one prepared you for this. <laughs> so, well, actually, maybe I don't know if I have anything more to say about the arc. So maybe that's a good transition. You don't want to say anything or, like, make high-pitched noises for a minute about oh, Gabby Snuggling? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I do. <laughs> You're welcome. I got you, babe. <laughs> That's so funny. I, you know what? Because I, I made a, a like major mental note that I was like, I really want to talk about the Wick stuff. And I didn't make a mental note to talk about Cabby because why, why would I need to make that note? Why would we <laughs> have a mental just, note? Keep just reading. assume. Exactly. <laughs> he, I just, he's just like crawling through a boiling hot air duct <laughs> to get to his wife. I'm just like, it's all so Taylor But she doesn't even um, like him that much at this point, which makes it even better. Oh my god, yeah. It does, yes. He was like, I will burn my hands for you, person who doesn't even like me. Yeah, it's like, well that's, I, that's what I, like, as a, just like purely with my, like, shipper hat on, why this episode, the first time I watched it was like, revelatory. <laughs> <laughs> you know and and now having seen the script pages for it so like some of the you know he pulls her into his arms like some of that is in the script a lot of it i think is just you know i think just Paige and ian are just just, just like snuggling but the thing <laughs> like as a as a shipper that i thought was so you know emotional gut punch about it is that like their previous interaction like in the episode before this one there's the explosion. They have the kind of like little moment of sort of truce about Vera and about sort of the mutual like side eyeing of Diana. So like they're at least like we are on the same team temporarily in crisis mode, but like we're not we're not friends, you know, like we're just sort of like we're temporarily right. united in the, like, like we're allies. Both the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we think we have a common enemy and we're going to put our past animosity on hold because like your mom just died. Right, we've got a crisis to fix. Right, but it isn't in any way yeah. kind of like a like a decisive mending of the fact that like, you know, there's still this huge rift between them over the culling and all this, this sort of past stuff that hasn't been, you know, been dealt with yet. 
But the thing about that last little moment between the two of them is like, like aside from the fact that like when he turns her over and realizes that it's Abby and his whole face lights up like she <laughs> is the sun, <laughs> which is like beautiful beyond all human comprehension. But also, you know, just that like, he just like sits down next to her and kind of puts his arm around her and you see her see that it's him. And then she kind of like, collapses against his shoulder and it's like I mean and it's so sweet and just so like oh thank god like they're both okay but it's one of those little moments where the first time I watched it I remember thinking like these people behave in this moment and a little bit with Vera too and it's like this kind of dials it up a little bit but it's like they behave like people who know each other very well and it sort of made me think like it opens up a lot of sort of headcanon space for like did they used to be much closer friends than they are now is it because of you know jake dying there's no kind of like you're the one that they sent to come rescue me oh i don't want to hug kane like none of that they're just like (laughs) you know like he's so relieved to see her alive and she's just kind of like barely like half conscious but they're so comfortable being like in physical contact with each other and like this is the first time aside from her kind of putting her hand on his shoulder with vera that we see them like touching each other like him reaching out to like use touch to comfort somebody which is something that we now know in like latter seasons he does all the time like marcus kane is like forever hugging dudes (laughs) (laughs) he loves hugging men so much he does it with jaha he does it with ike he does it with bellamy he hugs clark he does it with harper like not even counting just like his relationship with abby which is obviously like his most intimate he's a person who uses touch to give comfort a lot and this is the first time in the whole show that we see that trait introduced because he holds himself so distant from other people in the whole rest of the show and like abby touches him to comfort him when vera dies you know we see vera do it too obviously but we don't see him initiate it so it's just this really small lovely little moment where it's sort of like again like with wick it's this tiny little window into this whole other side of him as a person that we haven't had a chance to see yet because we've we've seen him so much like performing the role of like jaha's number two guy do you want to hear my really really sad headcanon about why kane starts hugging people at this point um only always (laughs) (laughs) um so this is like 100% headcanon territory and i just broke my own heart thinking of it so Headcanon, Vera Kane was a hugger and Marcus never was. And she always wanted to hug him and he never really liked hugging. He never was like sort of touchy-feely. And then she dies and he realized it had been a long time since he hugged her. And so this is, and so he becomes a hugger after his mother dies. Erin, you are a monster. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. Christ, Aaron! <laughs> uh, well, headcanon accepted. Now we're all going to be ruined. <laughs> it's so... I could not keep that inside because no, I, just, no. I couldn't break my own... I couldn't break my heart alone! <laughs> it totally... And it totally checks out because she... I mean, like, one of the things that I, that I really love about Vera, given, like, what... You know, she's such a tiny little character. We only get her in a couple episodes. But the vast difference between who she is as a person and who her son is like it's like there's okay there's so much backstory here 
Well, and you can imagine, like, she is a pretty, you know, okay, so she's, like, she's, like, the religious leader on the Ark, right? Yeah. As far, I mean, we don't, we don't actually know, we don't very get very much world building in terms of beliefs, but, like, we know that there's this religion, seems fairly well attended, she's the leader of it, she's certainly well known for that, you know, like, she's, she's, like, a known person for the Eden Tree cult, and you can imagine, like, like, little Marcus growing up, and everyone knows who he is, because everyone knows Vera. And everyone knows what Vera's like. And everyone knows, you know, that religion. You know, so there's a certain elements of, like, early season one Marcus that sort of feel to me like a guy who never quite left his sort of, like, teenage rebellion rejection of having spent his entire life being Vera Kane's son, you know? Right. Even going so far as to being part of the guard and being, you know, essentially yeah, exactly. military instead of religion. Exactly, exactly. And like sort of denigrating her beliefs is sort of like silly. And then and and so it's just like everything about him tracks as being built on trying to be as different from her as he could get. So the reversal after she dies where he starts to sort of pick up some of that stuff like physical affection, you know, that he didn't have before just seems to me like... Like, the little bits of him that were locked inside that he didn't let out until it was too late. Oh, and then the tree, too. Like, we really do, like, like they they make it really literal that we see him, like, making, you know, intentional choices to, like, carry forward the things that were important to her. Mm -hmm. And it is also, I think, now I'm, you've ruined me forever because I totally believe this. Because I also do (laughs) feel like... We see over the course of, you know, like much more so in in seasons three and four, but even developing, you know, over the course of season two, that, you know, his interactions with the kids are so parental in a way that really tracks with how parental she was. You know, like she was a very compassionate person, but she was also a straight shooter. Yeah. Like even as early as season two, like the way Kane is with Clark feels like it has echoes of Vera's kind of like incredibly compassionate but also no-nonsense parenting style to it and as somebody who has lost a parent you know I think it is definitely a reality that you become sort of more aware of like they're not here to do this thing and so I'm kind of in some ways consciously adopting those traits a little bit more that's the thing that people think about Okay, but what if, what if, like, Vera really, really, really wanted a grandchild and he was like, no, I'm too busy to get married and have a grandchild. Oh. And then she died and this is why he's, like, going around adopting everyone now. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Vera was, like, wondering, like, when's he going to settle down with that nice Cali Cartwig? Yep. Yep. And so now he's making up for it by having everyone as his child. By having 1,000 children. Like, you are all yeah. my children, wherever you are, Mom. <laughs> I oh have all the God. grandkids now. I have all the grandkids. Most of them have murdered several people. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Vera would love them anyway. Exactly. She totally would. Oh, my God. Vera and Blake siblings. That would be great. Oh, oh now God. there's there's a thing that I feel sad that we will never, ever get to see. Like, could you imagine... If Vera Kane could sit down with, like, Bellamy in the second half of season three or season four, you know, like, post-Pike Bellamy, and, like, sit down and have a talk, like... Right, or season four Octavia. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I have not written it yet, but I had a whole kind of, like, thick outline that I was, like, noodling around with, like, a season three kind of rewrite where instead of it being 
Pike, le- Pike and Hannah leading farm station, it's Callie and Vera. And so all the ways in which it sort of shifts, like, Kane and Abby's relationship having Callie be the person who's, like, become, like, super hardened by the three months with Ice Nation. Vera getting to, like, experience the grounders and, like, Vera and Octavia and Lincoln, like, going off and, like, foraging for things. Like, just, like, her, like, her sense of wonder... And like like Vera and Lincoln would have like gotten along so well. Like it's like all of the like, oh Vera, you should have been here. You should have like gotten to see Earth. And that's why I think too, like like the way he's kind of like starry eyed when they go to Polis for the first time, you know, and he's yeah. just like this is amazing. Fish is amazing. Sunglasses are amazing. Buildings are amazing, you know. <laughs> and it's just like I bet that's Vera too. You know, like I bet that he grew up in a family where like I wonder what Earth is like. Yeah. Was yeah. a thing that they talked about. His bedtime stories were Vera telling him, you know, like what she imagined Earth would be like again. Yeah, exactly. Because it's so hardwired into her belief system. It's the foundation of, you know, of her theology is that, you know, like this tree came from the ground up to space and they're they are its temporary custodians until it will return with humanity back to the ground again and so like like she must have been a person who was like deeply shaped by her own imagination and wondering you know about earth and so that sort of deeply nerdy side of Kane, we see that little glimpse of him in that polis scene and it's that's the moment where it's the most like aside from planting the tree I feel like the Polis Marketplace is the moment where he is the most visibly like, you are Vera Kane's child. You know, like, this is exactly yeah, what your mom yeah. would do. You know, and it's just like, yeah, oh, yeah. It's so, oh. Anyway, so yeah, so I love the cabbie snuggles. I love the Kane and Wick banter. I love our first little kind of taste of Kane, the genuine leader. This is like one of my favorite arc episodes, I think, of the whole season. Although, I mean, I always... I wish Abby was in it more because there's only like one second worth of Abby, although she gets to she gets to be badass in the next couple episodes. But yeah, this is just like right in the Claire sweet spot. Just like, oh, oh, Marcus. Marcus, my precious broken oh, Marcus. angel. I, I also want to point out that we said we were moving on to Clark 15 minutes ago. So way to keep up your brand, Claire. Oh, yeah, that's, that's how we roll. <laughs> time we were both like i don't really have that much to say about harper and then the next 40 minutes were about harper yes <laughs> this is how we roll on metastation <laughs> yeah yeah it's like i just have a real quick five minutes so like four hours later <laughs> exactly because like i don't always know what i think about something until we start talking about it and then i'm like oh i guess i do oh i don't either thoughts. yeah I didn't, I didn't know I had any of these thoughts about Kane or Vera or anybody until this was happening. Yeah, like, same, I actually. Decided Kane. to ruin yeah. us all. And then it yes. just, well. It's the magic of metastation. So let's talk about Anya and Clark and to a lesser extent Finn. <laughs> <laughs> so Finn is there and I guess he's kind of important, whatever. <laughs> I mean, he's helpful, which is kind of the only time this season I feel yeah. like he's actually helpful. Yeah, I, I will say that, it, Well, like, he's helpful because he's not actually making any decisions. He's just, like, he's just doing the things that Clark tells him to do. Right. Which, you know. Yeah, and he's being he's being pretty supportive. <laughs> like, he, he is annoying in the Raven scenes. And we'll, mm. we'll come back to Raven. In the oh. End. Well, yeah, I think yes. we need to save that for later because I just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll come back to that. It's a whole thing. Yeah. It's a whole thing. Yes. 
But I found him, I will say, like, marginally to his credit, in the Clark slice of the storyline, I found him more or less bearable because he got out of her way. He was, like, being helpful when he was needed. Yeah. He wa- and he was not, and it's annoying that this is noteworthy, he wasn't <laughs> making it about their romantic relationship. It was just like, you know, there's a dying girl, there's a task that needs to be performed, he's gonna get killed if they don't do it. So it was, like, stripped of the ability to be, like, a mopey mood about how Clark doesn't love him or whatever I was like okay you're tolerable because you don't have the time to make this about like your whiny penis feels right now (laughs) she's just like Finn hand me the thing and he's like I will hand you the thing and I was like this Finn is bearable He should have a knife in his throat at all times. Finn should never and then I have mind him so much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just have Anya forever standing behind him with the sword at his throat and right. then like he's fine. <laughs> yeah, all of the annoyingness is in the setup, you know, is in him. Yeah. Like winding up in the Yeah, I don't know. I guess we can return to this next time. It's a little unclear. Well, you know, I was thinking about this because like so this whole thing in this episode, I mean, like, I think, like, even the stuff that's happening on the ground is really table setting, too. You know, like, up on the arc, there's a kind of, like, a little bit of, you know, like, a little bit of a mystery and a little bit of a sort of, like, episode that kind of runs on the creepy vibe, you know? It's just sort of a, a series of obstacles and figuring out the puzzle of the arc and are people alive? And, like, really, it's just kind of, like, it's building up to finding Abby and getting sort of the table set so that they can sort of in the next episode realize like okay we can't stay here how are we going to get to the ground and then on the ground it's kind of a similar thing where like not actually like the plot doesn't really move very much no they're still just waiting for the grounder attack Mm -hmm. the whole this whole thing with Anya and Triss is really it doesn't actually advance the overall ground plot very much like the one sort of major thing that happens in there that that really like contributes to the general arc of the plot leading to the finale is Clark finding out that the grounders are coming the next day yes Mm -hmm. which the guy lets slip so then you know so she finds that out that kind of ups the urgency she has to run home so that that kind of sets up again you know her and Finn running back into camp and letting everybody know that they're on their way you know setting up the final battle but everything else like the little girl like they don't save the little girl you know they don't like it doesn't actually move things forward i did think it was interesting that the grounders were gonna take clark though yeah they were because they didn't have a healer so they were going to just like sort of kidnap her and and make her be their new healer Mm -hmm. but like even like that didn't happen you know like that doesn't that's not really like an important plot point that was just an explanation it was just why she didn't get murdered like an explanation right exactly yeah exactly like it gave a good reason why they didn't just kill her but i think like the interesting thing so like when i was thinking about the title of this episode the calm i think it's an interestingly sort of like it's mostly kind of a meta title i think Mm -hmm. the really amazing thing about this episode is that we've talked about last time how like really it's kind of a four-part finale there's four episodes that all kind of lock together to bring us to the finale but the amazing thing is that within this four episodes you feel like the momentum is really going this is an entire episode where like virtually nothing happens plot wise but really it's just like a sort of pause that does a whole ton of character work yeah Mm -hmm. yep and table settings so like Oh, and the, I guess the other thing that kind of that happens in this episode that winds up being important for plot, but we don't know it now, is Monty discovering the interference 
um, with the Exodus yes. ship's navigation system, and then him disappearing, which we find out, of course, eventually is Mount Weather, but we don't know mm-hmm. at this point. So, like, there's a, a whole bunch of stuff that becomes significant later that happens in this episode that we don't know about now. Everything else is kind of like a fill-in, but it's, like, fill-in that does, like, a ton of really important character work, particularly for Kane and Clark and Bellamy and Raven, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, that is the amazing thing about season one of this show, I think. That, like, it takes a lot of balls to pause the plot this close to the end and go, like, stuff's going to happen, but it's really going to be about character instead of plot. Right. And it's mm-hmm. so important. And I think this is, like, a really a huge part of what makes this season so good. And I think that's an element, it's something that they did not do in season four, you know? I think that's something that was really missing mm-hmm. in season mm-hmm. four. Yeah. In season four, they needed an episode like The Calm. That wasn't about plot, but was about character. It was about pausing and being like, we're going to give you scenes that really dig into like, where exactly are these characters now going into the finale? I think Bellamy may be less so in this episode. It's more about Raven. The next episode is more Bellamy's character episode. So it's interesting because like, because I think part of the reason why Finn is so not annoying in the Anya stuff is because to me, it seems like that is mostly about Clark. It's about like Clark and about like sort of, giving us an insight into where she is as a character and where she's going and kind of like the transformation that's happening to her as a result of being forced into this position. Beginning of the episode, talking about like pushing back a little on Bellamy against you, the idea of going to war or killing people. At the end, you know, she winds up slicing a dude's throat and then like looking him in the eyes as he dies. You know, like <laughs> yeah, Stone I love Cold, that moment so much. Clark oh Griffin. My God. You know, so she's just like, like, Joan fucking you know, like, Cold. Yeah. Like she, you know, like she, Clark discovers there's this potential in her that she didn't know that she had, that we didn't know that she had, that's going to be so important. You know, it's like such a fundamental part of, her, part of her going forward. But we had to sort of like go through with her step by step to get there. And so I think because it's so much about Clark, that's why Finn is just kind of there like, doing here's the scalpel stuff Mm -hmm. you know because it really because he's really just there to be a life that another life on clark's shoulders right and she's struggling he's there to make sure clark behaves yeah exactly so i you know so i think you know not not coincidentally finn is less annoying because he's less relevant (laughs) yeah like i i'm fine with him in the in the damsel in distress capacity where he exists as a thing that is you know an additional sort of weight on clark's shoulders to not fuck this up because that that diminishes his opportunities to make her life about himself Exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The show knows we don't care how Finn feels about dying. Yeah. We just care about how Clark feels about yeah. dying. <laughs> but it is true that I, I had, you know, I hadn't thought of it until until you said that the way that the title tells us what's going to happen, because really, in some ways, the whole episode functions as a kind of deep character study of Kane and Clark and Raven. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and like and and Bellamy too, kind of, although although. There's... To a lesser extent. It's more, you can you can extrapolate stuff about Bellamy, but yeah. it's less about him. Yeah, but we get, yeah, a, yeah. We get a, deeper, a deeper and more kind of intimate portrait of Raven in that side of the story, Clark here, and then Kane on the arc. Like these three very complicated people at this pivotal turning point moment in what's going to happen to them next, although we don't know what that thing is going to be. But it makes the stakes for the big, huge stuff that's about to happen. Like, you know, this is the thing that I, that I always wish that writers 
writers understood the big action set pieces have the emotional gut punch that they have when they come on the heels of moments like this where we get to sort of be with the characters in these big moments you know like the things that Clark has to do in the next couple of episodes you know in the coming season our sense of the emotional weight of that is shaped by feeling the walls closing in on her as it looks more and more and more difficult for her to get the chance to actually save this little girl and then us getting to sit with her in that very still ominous creepy ass moment where she watches the life go out of this guy's eyes <laughs> it's our first look at that side of Clark who then becomes it's like her kind of evolution as a leader takes a really sharp right turn here in this moment and so that shapes the big stuff that kind of happens afterwards but we have to slow down and linger you know we have to like her, her facial expressions and and watching her kind of like increase sense of panic as she's trying to go through all the different things that she can think of to do to try to save this little girl so Finn doesn't die and then the way it all flips when they reveal that like the grounders are coming tomorrow you're out of luck you know it's all kind of in aid of the building of the sort of ruthless side of Clark that she has to use more and more as the storyline goes on a big piece of that clicks into place here but if we just sort of raced past it to get to the part with all of the like war and explosions it wouldn't have that emotional impact yeah Mm mm-hmm were you going to say something a minute ago? Elizabeth? Oh, yeah. What I noticed while I was watching this was so with Clark and Triss, right? Like, so Clark is mm-hmm. like appalled with the grounders for mm-hmm. yeah. sending a small child into battle and putting her at risk. And it reminded me of some of her issues in season two with the grounders where mm-hmm. she's not really realizing how hypocritical she's being because mm-hmm. they sent Charlotte down to die. <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah like, you yeah. are all children clerk yeah <laughs> you're all of 17 you're a kid you know and so it's like she's definitely yeah. coming at it from this very kind of like superior mindset of like this is horrific and barbaric and it's like but are you guys any different right I mean, like, yeah, you know, you think about, like, what's happening back at the camp, and that is also a child army. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those kids, like, all those guards are at the oldest, maybe just barely 18, but probably 17 at the oldest. Probably, I'm going to guess that Clark and Bellamy aren't having the youngest kids be soldiers, you know, but like probably like 14. But like Miles went out to hunt. Yeah. Yeah, Miles, who can't be older than like 14, 15. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So there is, it is interesting. And and like Tris didn't look like, she wasn't like eight, you know, Tris looked like she was 12 or 13, you know. Mm -hmm. And well, and and like, yeah, she had a bunch of kills already, but it's sort of, it is, it is interesting that there is a lot of hypocrisy in Clark's point of view. And I, I go sort of, that's an interesting thing where it's sort of like, is that because Clark is supposed to be the sort of audience point of view? You know, is like, right. is that just a sort of reflection of the way that we would react to such a situation now that doesn't entirely fit with the world as they've built it? You know what I mean? Right. Oh, but, you know, on the other hand, like, Lord knows that being a part of a culture means that you just walk around with any, with all sorts of just like tons of cognitive dissonance that you don't even notice because you're so sort of like locked right. into it. So mm-hmm. then, you know, is that just a kind of arc blind spot? You know, um, like one of those sort of like distinctions that are so important in one culture and not another that seem black and white and, and aren't so much when you look at them from a different perspective. Yeah, I I sort of interpret it 
that way too given also to the like the sort of disclaimer that i think there are a lot of elements of how grander culture operates that are not fully fleshed out in a way that we the audience are shown the human reasoning behind them until later in the show right like they're they're still very much in like more on the side of tree-dwelling savage tropes as opposed to the sort of intricate complexities of their society that we get later in subsequent seasons. Like, Anya is really our first... Anya and Lincoln are kind of our first definitive step out of that. Mm -hmm. But we haven't really dug into that super deeply. But I, I, you know, I do think one of the things that's interesting about the sort of, like you said, the innate hypocrisy a little bit of of Clark being, you know, horrified that somebody would put a child in danger when she herself was like 17. (laughs) (laughs) Is that... And currently leading a child army. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, Like Anya, I think part of what's significant about that is that Triss was not... Anya did not actually think that she was putting Triss this time in that like she wasn't necessarily in that difficult of a situation or she was like Anya's like she was with me you know like she was right with Anya Mm -hmm. and if the bridge hadn't blown up Triss would have been undercover of the army and they have all of the advantages which is like you know like we so we saw we saw from the kids camp point of view the emotional impact of knowing that they were potentially about to be swarmed and outnumbered by this way bigger grounder army that was coming to like attack them and they were sitting ducks which is why they blew up the bridge but from Anya's point of view the fact that Triss was right there with her right with the rest of her people that they had numbers on their side like Triss was by sort of grounder child warrior standards as safe and as protected as she could have been except for the bridge right well I mean this is this is kind of like this was supposed to be an easy one for them exactly yeah this was like this is the the battle that you do take your 12 year old second along to watch because this is going to be like an easy kill you know well, it's not even a battle because they sent Murphy back to to basically make it a slaughter. Like they were just right. marching in to sort of clean up the leftovers. They weren't exactly. even expecting much resistance at all. Yeah. You know, and the other thing that, that was interesting about the fact that, you know, that detail that the injuries that Triss sustained were not even shrapnel. They were the shockwave from the bomb hitting her. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of those, and one of those things were sort of like, one reason I think perhaps that Finn is with Clark here, besides setting up the Raven stuff, you know, I think Finn leaves with Clark in this episode more for Raven's character right. journey mm-hmm. than even for his or Finn's. Um, but I think part of the reason why he's there, and this, you know, this doesn't like land completely, but I hadn't really thought about it before this viewing, but the bomb was Finn's idea. Mm-hmm. And it was Finn's attempt. That was like Finn trying to think of like, what's a way to deal with this that is quote-unquote non-violent and his solution Mm -hmm. was blow up the bridge and Triss dies because they blew up the bridge right not even because she was hit by shrapnel not even because she was on the bridge when it blew up which is what Bellamy wanted to have happen just because the bridge was blew up and it was big enough and she was close enough that she was hit with a shockwave so Mm -hmm. really Triss dies because of Finn you know, like this is this is a repercussion of yeah, this suggestion, sort of mm-hmm. like half measure that he came up with. It's sort of like, well, how do we like how do we put off this battle? How do we try to avoid actually fighting? And it winds up having casualties anyway because right. well, they're still at war. Like he's still looking yeah, for exactly. like a nonviolent solution in the middle of a war. Yeah. But when you're in the middle of a war, exactly. And and like so, I think there's there's an interesting way, sort of where part of what's happening is just sort of like adding another layer of complication 
to the situation, you know, and, and sort of like this, there's a kind of feeling of inescapability, you know, like, yeah. like you're saying they're in a war and like Finn and, and also Clark keep looking for ways out. Like Clark earlier was like, there has to be a better way than this. They keep looking for ways mm. out. So there's a sense in which they're sort of almost being like where they're sort of like trying to find an escape and there isn't one, you know, mm -hmm. and they keep accidentally backing themselves into worse positions by not just confronting the situation that they're in. Right. So, yeah. So I thought that was kind of an interesting wrinkle. And I, you know, I hadn't thought about that before until, you know, the last time we had our big, you know, <laughs> rant about Finn and, and Kim Shumway <laughs> mentioned, you know, there was always debate about Finn in the writer's room and he's not mm -hmm. necessarily meant to be seen as like perfect or good or whatever, you know, his, his decisions are, are complicated and compromised like anybody else's. And so this time it finally occurred to me, I was like, oh, well maybe, maybe that's deliberate, you know, like maybe, maybe part of the point of this is like Finn has to stand there and, and sort of face the consequences of the suggestion, sort of the route that he suggested and advocated and have to face the fact that he's causing death and destruction too, which theoretically was supposed to wind up with his own death. You know, so in a way there's a kind of like weird roundabout poetic justice accident. Yeah, yeah. And you know, like Triss dying means Finn dies. You know, like the grounders don't know that that bomb was Finn's idea, but it was, you know. Yeah, but Finn knows that and Clark knows that. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I really like that interpretation of it because I was thinking a lot too about, you know, when we talked last time about the sort of particular and specific Finn and Luna parallels about sort of like, it's really important to me to keep my own hands clean. I feel like I'm the kind of person who is yeah. like making this kind of decision. And I also feel like I, you know, like you, I feel like my perception of Finn in season one, in particular in the last couple episodes, has been sort of shaped in some interesting ways by having had that conversation with Kim Shumway where we now sort of know, okay, like this was, you know, a lot of this sort of complexity was intentional. Like you said, like we're not meant to see him as the hero. And so I, I like that interpretation that that part of why this had to happen the way that it had to happen is because Finn's hands are not clean and Finn convincing himself that he has stayed above the fray in some way, that he's superior to Bellamy because he doesn't like guns, you know, or or that he's superior to, you know, like he's the one that Clark should have listened to because he had the like magical solution that was going to fix everything. Like him having to sort of confront the fact that that's not an option that exists in this scenario you know like that is not mm -hmm. like there's no way to get out of this without somebody having to make a hard choice and all he's done he thinks is arranged it so like he never has to be the person who makes that choice and so yeah. I think so I think yeah the idea that him witnessing and being in as far as we know from the ending of this episode you know immediate life or death danger because of Tris dying because of a choice that he made I think is an interesting little circumstance of I guess foreshadowing to the like really really big chickens coming home to roost between Finn and the grounders that we get in season two where it's like yeah again yeah. your hands are not clean there are consequences because the things that you did even though you thought you were doing them for the right reasons somebody died right and Finn was there when she died which I feel like is mm -hmm. important 
you know yeah. yes. he didn't just hear about it yeah he he tried he tried to help clark save her and failed yeah yeah and failed yeah and he had to sort of you know he had to and, and clark explained specifically how these injuries happened you know like we got a lot of detail that seems important in a way that i hadn't thought about it being important before this rewatch mm-hmm. you know as opposed to just like whatever you know like she got hit by a flying piece of concrete (laughs) (laughs) which easily could have also been you know like plot wise in terms of trying to save a little girl's life it would have done the same thing but the point of having it be like nothing touched her it was just the mere you know sort of invisible force of the bomb you know what i mean like that Mm -hmm. weird sort Mm -hmm. of like like there there are repercussions to things that you can't see and touch you know that that seems kind of i don't know seems sort Mm of uh significant but yeah i mean i just like I feel like we just, there was like so much of future seasons Clark that we see coming out in this episode that we haven't seen yes. before. Like, like there's so much about like ep- the Clark that we see in the first episode of season two mm-hmm. that like you would not expect, you would not like, like fits perfectly with the Clark that we see in this episode, but would be totally unexpected if you were just looking at Clark from like 106 or something like that. Yeah. But like yeah, in this yeah. one, we finally see like, when her back is to the wall, like Clark Griffin will cut a bitch, you know, yeah. like she will cut a carotid artery yep. and she will look you in the <laughs> eyes and make sure you're dead. Well, first yep. she will <laughs> kick you in the knee that she knows is yeah. injured. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like she will like pay attention to every one of your weaknesses and then use them against you. Yep. If she has to, to save her people. Like this is the first time we really, really see, you know, that, that, Although she's, you know, compassionate and and she's, you know, she doesn't want to resort to violence and she doesn't want to go, all right, you know, scorched earth um, the way that Bellamy does more quickly, you know, like, it's not that she's, you know, she has a kind of like stone cold ruthlessness. Well, she will Mm -hmm. do what she has to do. And this is kind of finally where that aspect of her sort of emerges. And it's really sort of thrilling to watch yeah i also noticed that like when the grounder guy was like telling her you know like oh prove yourself and you can live with us or you'll be honored or whatever it seemed to me like clark was considering it right like because she's like oh well can i like go visit my friends like can i visit my home after and like it's not until he's like oh there won't you know like there's not gonna be anything to go back to we're wiping them out tomorrow that she like picks up the scalpel and is like okay well then you're gonna die because I think this whole time she's been, like, she's been looking for, like, a way out of this that doesn't involve murder. Yeah, that's kind of how I interpreted it was, like, is that her saying, okay, if I stay with you and serve as your healer, is, like, is that our truce now? And if it was, yeah, like, she'd yeah. be totally willing to do that. And mm-hmm. then he's just like, oh, yeah, no, we're still going to murder all these people for sure. It's like, okay, well, like, then. Well, then there's no point. Then deal canceled. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay, then you die. <laughs> that is almost like the quintessence of Clark Griffin. Like, she will always look for another way. She will always mm-hmm. look, you know, that Griffin, like, look for the third way, you know, like, given two sort of polar opposite extreme possibilities, she'll be like, well, fuck that. I'm going to, like, find some other way that isn't yeah. so horrible, you know? Like, she will always keep looking and looking and looking and looking for that other way. But the moment. It comes down to it. You know, the moment Mm -hmm. it sort of, like, reaches, like, all right, you have to make a decision. You have to do something or all your people die. She will do whatever she has to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. So, like, this is almost, I mean, it's kind of like the rise of 
the the Clark Griffin that we will know and love for the rest of the series, I think, in a lot of ways. And I also wondered a little bit, you know, I I mean, I know it's sort of not not in a literal way what it's referring to, but it does does also sort of feel like is this the sort of very earliest genesis of her kind of commander of death mythos among the grounders yeah i wonder Mm -hmm. and in a sort of big picture level i know that you know they they call her that after mount weather you know like that's the sort of the big one but there are so many incidents sort of along the way where it's sort of like this is even if it is sort of like for for us kind of knowing that that's where it goes like this is this is our first little glimpse of the clark that becomes sort of revered as this like sort of vengeance goddess by grounder culture you know like the way that she stirs that guy down it's like this is like this is the clark this is the clark that they that they saw like this is what they meant when they named her that right well and they attribute the bomb to clark too even though yes they do yeah we know that wasn't necessarily her main plan right that was right raven and bellamy and finn but yeah like the grounders see it as her well and i mean i think in that in 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 this instance, you know, the fact that the previous episode ended with Clark saying, I am become death, mm-hmm. you know, becomes more and more, like, significant and deliberate. And that, like, that is the first major act of hers that, that is attributed to her, you know, that is sort of, like, starts this, the, the pattern of this mythos. And then, of course, it's like, there's that, and then there's her, you know, uh, roasting the grounders at the end of this season. Mm-hmm. From here on out, from the moment she says, I am become death, she kind of does. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, you know, like, episode after episode, it becomes more and more about Clark having to make that final choice, you know, being forced into positions where she has to sacrifice, you know, someone or some group of people where someone has to die for her to sort of at least preserve the most important, the lives that are most important to her, the lives of her people. Which is another way, I think, like, a sadder way in which this is the emergence of the Clark that will be sort of the main Clark for the next few seasons. You know, that kind of leads to her just, like, absolute exhaustion and emotional breakdown in in season four. Um, mm-hmm. This is a lot sadder podcast than I <laughs> Yeah, what a downer. Bring Wick back. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got a woody crack? <laughs> Well, we can talk about sex for a little while. That'll lighten the mood. Yes. <laughs> Except for it's like also the most depressing sex. It, well, <laughs> yeah. It's not even happy sex. It's like very, very bummer sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, Probably the sex true. is good. But the, like, the, the, the setup and the aftermath of the sex is not particularly. No. Yes. So let's talk about Raven and Finn and Bellamy and <laughs> Raven and... And all, all the things. All the mess. And and how uh-huh. fucking terrible Finn is at like Oh my god. Reading people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is uh. one of those bullets for me? Um go fuck yourself. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like like seriously? Seriously. I'm just checking to see if you're still mad at me. It's like he walks in and is like, Oh, do you have a bruise? Here, let me push on it. Oh, does that hurt? Yeah. Right. Why yeah. does that hurt? Like <laughs> Like, wait, are you the, mad at me for pushing on your bruise now? Like, how dare you? The most tone deaf. <laughs> oh, like, God. Could not be more tone deaf. And also, I just sort of feel like, in general, I'm just like, 
Can everyone please leave Raven alone while she's extremely busy saving your asses? Okay, thanks, bye. Like, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, and also it's just like, I mean, like, okay, just just in general life, if you're just living your regular life and no one is trying to make bullets so you won't get slaughtered by an army in the near future, like, a thing you should not do is if someone, if your significant other breaks up with you because you were basically having an emotional affair with another person right in front of them and they were like I know you know like I can't do this because like I'm not getting out of this relationship what I need and it's clearly very painful the thing you should not do is a day and a half later go back to her and say hey are you still mad at me because like it's really uncomfortable for me that you're mad at me like so. it's bumming me yeah. out that you're mad at me for these very legitimate it's, reasons I'm bummed right. you're mad at me. <laughs> could you just not be mad like you need to fuck off for like a long time like yeah. a long time yeah you need to go like stew in how shitty you feel and not bother that person until they decide to talk to you again because yeah seriously yeah <laughs> because it's not fucking about your feelings finn which is, should be the subtitle of season one. Season one, <laughs> it, it's not about your fucking feelings, Finn. <laughs> uh, it's so true. Well, and like, and then when he makes that like, that bitchy little comment about like, I always, like, I always know when you're in a bad mood because then you, you know, you always find something to keep super busy. And she's like, she's making bullets. Like, she's like, yeah. you're in a war and she's your one bullet maker, and she's trying to, like, help Jasper figure out how to make bombs. Like, Raven, like, you would all be so fucking dead without her. And he yeah. needs to take that moment that's about, you know, her being, like, so vital to everyone else's survival and just be like, I just want to, like, show off how well I know you. And it's Well, and it's not even, like, how well he knows her. Like, it's about making her feel like bad about what she's doing and that's what yeah yeah like like I think I think I wrote a meta about this like like a while ago where like like so if you look at how Bellamy and Finn handle like Raven in a mood this episode Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know it's like Finn comes in and is like oh you know what here's your coping strategy I'm gonna make you feel really vulnerable and exposed like this is what right. you do when yeah. you're mad. So that means you're mad and that means you're mad at me and I'm going to make you talk about it even though I have just demonstrated that I know this is what you do when you don't want to talk about it. Like Right. And then like mm-hmm. emotionally blackmail you into saying, "No, we're cool. We're cool." Right. Whereas like Bellamy comes yeah. in and she's like planning on, you know, like fucking leaving, which I feel like she's totally <laughs> that's totally legit. Oh, yeah. Right? But, like, he comes in and she's like, okay, well, I'm leaving. And he's like, okay, well, what what about what you can do for us? Right? Like, he makes, Mm -hmm. he puts her back in control rather than being like, oh, are you upset? It's about her, like, regaining some agency in the situation in a way that, like, Finn completely took away from her. Well, because he totally reminds her of her past brilliance. He's right. like, you did this for us. You did this for us. You did this for us. And and I think for her, it's like the reminder that she accomplished all those things while dealing with this totally nonsensical, horrible, thin and Clark situation. Bellamy's telling her, like, 
you can get through this. You can do the things that you need to do under pressure because that's what you've been doing before. And like, we need you, you know, like he gives her a purpose and something concrete, but he does it by reminding her, you have this extraordinary brain. Like he sees, he sees her capability in a way that Finn only, I, I just, I feel like Finn never fully appreciates or recognizes the extraordinariness of Raven. Right. Well, I feel like Finn always sees himself as like the hero of any story he's in. Yeah. Well, because he's because Finn saved Raven when Raven was young, you know, like Raven had nobody. Raven came from the super fucked up family. Finn was her only family. And so Finn's whole perception of her, I think, is stuck in, you know, when they were 10 or 12 or whenever, you know, when Mm -hmm. he would like share his food with her. Like that's who Raven will always be to him. And everybody else who met her on the gram, but particularly to Bellamy and Clark, she's this, like, unbelievably extraordinary person who has this set of monumental skills without which they would all be dead a million times over. And the two of them are always so keenly attuned to, like, what she's capable of doing and encouraging her that she can do more and, like, how amazing she is. And, you know, and Finn just... It just sees her as like the version of her that existed when they were like teenagers who were first in love and she was dependent on him and he got to feel good by like doing stuff for her in a more like a more negative or like less generous way to look at it too would be you know the times when finn is most supportive to raven like in season two you know and he's there for her for her surgery and stuff you know he's really great when she is in a bad place and is dependent on him and is somewhat beholden to him, you know? Yeah. So like he'll mm-hmm. give her when she's in, when she's, when she's really low because, you know, she has the heart condition and she can't spacewalk. Like he'll, he'll sort of make a spacewalk happen for her. Mm-hmm. He wants her to be a damsel in distress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he can save her. He can give her this thing. You know, he can, he can be, he can do this sort of like scampish, whatever, you know, break the rules for her so that she can have this experience. And then he takes the fall for her. And when she's in pain, you know, when, when she has to have someone to lean on, he can be there for her. Um, but when she's doing, you know, when she's in control, that's when he's shitty, you know, like in this mm-hmm. like weird kind of mm-hmm. nagging sort of way, that's when he doesn't like it, you know, like that's when he's, and I think that's a kind of, like, product of that dynamic. And, like, mm-hmm. Bellamy, on the other hand, like, the other, you know, interesting thing about Bellamy, in the context of Finn saying to Raven, like, oh, your coping mechanism, you know, what you do when you're upset is you find a project. Like, I think Bellamy sort of inadvertently um, intuits that coping mechanism. but and And, like, you know, and recognizes, like, what makes Raven not only special, but makes what makes her feel good, what what makes Raven feel what makes what makes Raven feel like she's awesome is being given an impossible problem and finding a solution. Mm-hmm. And so Bellamy right. is like, we need you. You're the only person who can find the impossible solution when we need one. Right. And guess well, what? And like, we need one. So what have you got? I know you've got more. I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like and like four seasons in, like we know what Raven prides herself on is her utility and her intelligence, like what she can do for the group exactly. with her brain. And like, yeah, yes. she's trying to do stuff for the group with her brain. And Finn comes in and is like, you know how you hate talking about emotions? Let's talk about that right now. Right. Make <laughs> you feel terrible. <laughs> Whereas Bellamy is like, 
I don't want you. I'm not going to make you talk about your emotions. I'm not going to make you tell me what what you're upset about. I'm just going to tell you, A, you shouldn't leave because you'll die. That's (laughs) silly. And B, like, we need you. You are needed. Mm -hmm. You are valuable. You know, like you and and you are remarkable. and, And I know that you've got more amazing stuff to give. So like, how about it? Like, amaze me again. You know, he kind of like gives her the opportunity to see her as something else, something other than the girl who was rejected by the boy she loves, you know? Right, and he brings up those, like, concrete examples of, like, these are the times you've saved our asses. Mm-hmm. How about you do it again? Yeah. Well, and I, what I, what I like about that dynamic is that it's like, you know, I, I think you're totally right, Erin, that it's like, both of them look at Raven and see the same trait, which is that when Raven is, you know, in a position of emotional distress, she needs to get her hands dirty. She needs to like dig into something and like solve a problem. And Finn sees it as something to be criticized. Like he Mm -hmm. sees it as something that is like negative and he judges it as though it is like yeah, like, yeah, and that it's, like, or, like, you're avoiding or you're, like, not dealing with things. Like, he or frames it. Or it's, like, you're it. doing this in order to avoid punching someone, which is, right, like, right. the shittiest way well, to Well, I mean, it. she's avoiding punching you, Finn, so exactly, maybe you should yeah. just right. not poke the dragon. <laughs> yeah, like, he's, yeah. he's, like, he's framing it as being, like, yeah, he's making it all about himself, but he's also framing it as inherently the fact that this is a thing that you do is a negative trait. And I think one of the really beautiful things about Bellamy and Raven's relationship, and 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 particularly lovely, I think, to sort of to get this moment kind of coming full circle after where they end in season at the end of season four, mm-hmm. you know, where where we revisit yeah. that dynamic in a huge way in that whole kind of space storyline in the finale, is that, you know, Bellamy has always seen Raven for exactly who she is, like sees these, you know, these traits of hers, but he doesn't ascribe a moral judgment to them the way Finn does is just like this is this is how our brain works this is what she's like you know and and Bellamy's kind of ability as a leader to to see the truth in people and to see what they're capable of and and draw that out when it's most needed instead of trying to turn them into somebody that they're not is like you know is one of the things I think that makes his relationship with Raven really special and I love get it that we sort of get this first little kind of slice of it you know now that we've sort of seen the real dramatic resurgence in the latter half of season four of that relationship and knowing that we're going to come back in season five with like you know who knows what will have happened mm-hmm. but like they're like they're the they're the leadership pair now you know, like they're the unit up on the arc again and it's a very potent contrast to Finn but I think you're right that it's like they see they look at it and they see the exact same thing and Bellamy encourages it and Finn is a bitch about it, you know? And right. well, Bellamy's <laughs> looking at, like, solving the problem in front of them, which is, like, we need yeah. to not die. Whereas, yeah. like, right, Finn right. is not capable of seeing any problem bigger than his own personal feelings as important. Exactly. Season yeah. one, it's not about your fucking feelings. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And then, I mean, like, and the other thing about Finn, like, you know, it's kind of going to that, that sort of solipsism or that he has, or that, that sort of like thoughtlessness that he has, him having that conversation with her, you know, I think it's one of those like things where I think he actually believes her when she says, yeah, we're cool, you know, in a way where it's sort of like, how the fuck could he possibly believe 
you know, Raven when she says that. Right, right? I was even thinking, I was like, do they not have, like, shitty stand-up comedians on the arc to be like, oh, when your woman says this, you know, says she's fine, you know she's not. Like, I refuse to believe that that sort of just terrible humor has completely died out. The borscht belt is farm station. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now I really, really, like, all I want from season five now is flashbacks to the arc of Monty doing, like, a borscht belt style, like, <laughs> uh... <laughs> He ends with tip your waitress, and Echo just, like, decks him. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, um, oh my god, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. This is terrible. The guy from Caddyshack. Um... Rodney Dangerfield? Rodney Dangerfield! Yes, thank you. I can't believe I blanked on that. All I want for season five is flashbacks to arc of Monty. Like, okay, so so Monty like, and you know what? Let's say Maury gets in on it too. Just wild card. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Murphy or Monty and Maury get really, really into Roddy Dangerfield movies and fancy themselves Borscht Belt comedians, and everybody else gets together and plots their murders. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like the other thing that kills me about that is like. Finn has supposedly known Raven since they were children. You know, like... Mm-hmm. He knows her well enough to know that this is what she does when she's coping. Yeah, exactly. He has to know her well enough to know that she's not... She doesn't really mean that. So either he's, like, deliberately ignoring it or he's just, like, so willing... So it wants him himself to be off the hook so much that he's willing to lie to himself and believe it. Because, like, then instantly the, the first thing he does is turn around and go find Clark and be like, hey, you want to go on a trip to the woods together alone? You know, like... He doesn't even wait a minute, you know? Like, he yeah. doesn't wait at all. He's like, okay, He's cool, like, cool. oh, all you're right, super well, mad go. at me. Oh, you said everything's fine? Then everything must be fine. Hey, new girlfriend, let's go hang out right. in front of yeah, no, I mean, Yeah, like, he, he, he literally just wanted the, like, the most perfunctory gesture from Raven of, no, Finn, you're not in trouble. Great, okay, see ya! <laughs> like, <laughs> and then he gets Christ. all mad at the Sweet. poor little red shirt for cock blocking them. I know. Uh, oh, uh, poor, poor Miles. Miles. Miles with his like hilarious crush on Clark. I know. <laughs> uh, okay, I have to scoot because it's six o'clock. Oh, okay. Um, have a good dinner. Yes, you guys carry on. Continue talking about all of the things, um, <laughs> and then I will see everybody else next time. Bye. Bye. Bye, Bye Claire. I think it, it, another one of those like really sad ironies, like Miles is the first guy, the first person whose like crush on Clark winds up getting him with a puncture wound in the chest. Right. Well, unless we count Wells too. Oh, fuck. That's right. Damn. Man, Clark has a really bad Clark, uh, track record. She really does. That poor girl. <laughs> <laughs> like, like so far she's four for four, I think. Well, yeah. no, not Nyla, I guess. Yeah, I suppose Nyla's still alive. Yeah, but so Nyla's okay. Yeah. So she's four for five. <laughs> <laughs> That's still pretty bad. Um, oh, yeah, the other thing I wanted to say about Miles is, like, so when Clark and Finn are, like, you know, they're tracking, like, the boar, and he's, like, rambling about stuff, and then he asks yeah. if they're tracking a panther, even though they're, like, tracking hooves. And I was like, <laughs> Pike. You dropped the ball big time. 
if this kid thinks <laughs> panthers have hooves. <laughs> like, I expect better of you, Charles Pike. <laughs> like, now, now, it might not be Pike's fault. Maybe that kid just like never paid attention true. to his skills because he didn't think that he would need it. True. I mean, we or all maybe have that he, student. Like, has been in jail for so long. That he ne- <laughs> yeah, we definitely all have that student. Maybe he's been in prison. He's been. He was in the skybox for so long that he never actually took Earth skills, other than like the two week crash course that they got at the end, which might not have covered. Panthers don't have hooves. <laughs> <laughs> but you'd think, like, he's obviously seen panthers and boars. Like, you would think he would have noticed their feet were different, right? I mean, come on, Miles. Come on, Miles is the kid who emails the professor to ask what the reading is for next week. Like, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Miles, I feel like, was never long for this world just based on his lack of awareness. Situational <laughs> awareness. <laughs> Poor kid. Aww. Natural selection is a bitch. <laughs> Do we want to talk about the. Bellamy Raven sex scene because I know you have a lot of thoughts about how that (laughs) by which I mean Elizabeth do you want to talk about the Bellamy and Raven sex scene I have have so many things to say um so this I actually don't think this was like intended by the writing um I want to make that clear this is Mm -hmm. totally just like Blarkship or headcanon (laughs) I'm always actually I think you and I both say it correctly don't we? Yeah, I think we do. I think we do. That's yeah. right. Suck On it, Wisconsin. Blark. Anyway. That's right. <laughs> so when Raven comes in, right, like her first, the first thing she says is they didn't waste any time. Right? Yeah. And Bellamy instantly knows who she's talking about. Right? It's not just about Finn. It's about Finn and Clark. And he's like, I don't care. Yes. Which. Yeah. Right, my Blark Shipper is heart is just like, no, you care, you care a lot. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, even just the fact that, like, like without context, I mean, the the fact that he instantly knows what she's talking about without having to be like, who doesn't waste any time on what? Right. Like Raven assumes that his mind goes direct, that he is thinking about Clark and Finn, and she has to know that he doesn't give a shit about Finn, you know? Right. So like, she's presuming that he's thinking about where Clark is. And he instantly knows what she's talking about, which suggests that he is thinking about those two. So, like, I mean, on the one hand, it's sort of like he could he could infer that she means Finn and Clark because he knows that she would care about Finn. But, it, and like, I do the same thing. My brain is like, you should have needed more clarification than that <laughs> if you weren't also so Right, well, and just his, like, you're mistaking me for someone who cares. Like... Is she? Right. Yeah, yeah. Is she? You, yeah. Me thinks you doth protest too much. Yeah. Mr. Blake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally there with you. Okay. All right. Obviously. So at least it's not just me. <laughs> also being a Blark shipper, who, this is kind of like not the best sample, but. Right. <laughs> <laughs> two out of two Blark shippers agree. It's totally canon. That's how that works, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Totally. Absolutely. There's nobody else here to, to disagree with exactly. us. Exactly. So there we go. Going to make the executive decision. <laughs> Let it be written. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But really, like, m- the main core of, like, why I, like, love this scene, like, 
so much is though like it builds a lot on that scene with Bellamy and Raven before right where he's giving Raven her agency in a situation where she doesn't feel like she has any control right so in the first one he's like no this is what you're good at we need you to be good at these things you can't leave us not like you're making me feel bad which is what Finn's saying Right? Right, yeah. yeah. But then in this one, when she's like, it's a very awkward seduction scene. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So awkward. It's so painful. And you just, when she's like, I've never been with anyone but Finn, I just, I'm like, honey, no. Oh. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. This is so hard to watch. Oh, sweetheart, this is not a good way to get someone to want to sleep with you. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good thing you're hot. Like, what what I love about it is so then Bellamy gives her that speech, like, you know, if you're looking for someone to talk you down from this, like, I'm not that guy. If you want me to tell you you're not thinking straight, like, look somewhere else. And so it's like, so he says this, and, like, in kind of, like, giving her that warning, like, he's definitely being that guy, right? He's giving her an out. But he's giving her an out where she's the one in control still. Right. He's not saying, no, this isn't what you want. He's like, if you're looking for something else, maybe get mad at me and leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like she's still got all of the control in the situation. And when she's like, no, this is what I want to do. He's like, okay. Which, I mean, you kind of have to compare that to Finn, who probably would have been like, no, I think you need to talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, she's already sort of saying, I want to do this. Then he sort of, in that moment, he kind of like, he offers her the opportunity to reconsider her consent. You know, he doesn't just sort of take it like, okay, let's go. He's like, here are some reasons. (laughs) I think that you might not 100% want this. I'm going to offer them to you. I'm going to give you the chance to tell me that you aren't 100% comfortable with this. He gives her the chance to sort of reconsider. He says like, here are some way, you know, like... Someone else would say you're doing this, you know, for these reasons and maybe you don't really want this. I'm, I'm saying that, but I'm not saying that. Right. By saying that to her, he's kind of giving her a chance to say no. You know, he's like... Right. He's, he's like, saying, he's double like, checking her consent. He's like, you're saying you want to have exactly. sex. Exactly. And it kind of seems like it's a bad idea. So I want to be sure this, this is what you want to do. Okay. Right. He's like, he's like, you're seducing me, but I would like an additional layer of affirmative consent (laughs) (laughs) before we proceed, (laughs) you know? And then I, I mean, I do think there is something like, clearly he, like, like Bellamy 100% knows what's going on. Like he knows why she's doing this. He knows why she needs it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think there's also something in, like you were saying about the fact that like, he doesn't second guess her decision that he is just sort of like, I mean, like he, you know, he says, I'm, I'm, if you need, looking for someone to talk you down, I'm not that guy. But like, I think in a sense, he is that guy. In a sense, he isn't that guy, you know, in a way he's the guy who's like, I will be the guy who gives you what you need in this moment. Right. He's taking her at her word. Exactly. It's not like Bellamy's been like, I really want to fuck Raven and I finally get my chance. You know, I, I, no. I don't really feel like he's he's thought about it before. No, he's literally trying to make her feel better. Right, exactly. So it's really kind of like an act of generosity on him. I mean, like, you know, obviously, you know, he gets to sleep with Raven, so it's not like he's suffering <laughs> here. But, it's um, a sacrifice <laughs> that he's making. <laughs> but it is, it is kind of an act of generosity for him to be like, 
like you said, like I'm taking you at your word. You say you want this. You know, you say you want to do this. You say you, you know, and he's like, I, I will, if what you're telling me you need is sort of like a moment, you know, or, or an hour of pleasure, you know, mm-hmm. like I can, I can give that to you. I can give to you what you feel like you need right now, you know? And like, I mean, that's why it makes it kind of so heartbreaking for both of them. I think at the end, you know, afterwards when he oh, says, that moment's so that sad. Help? Because he was trying to help, you know? So when she says, he's like, did that help? And she's like, no. Right. Well, it's like she came to him for help, really. Yeah. Right. And so he's like, okay, I will do this to help. I will help you with my penis. Right. That is. (laughs) (laughs) I will help you by allowing you to help yourself to my penis. Right. So (laughs) generous. So generous. What a good dude. But I mean, it was like he agreed to it kind of like under the condition like this will make you feel better and I want you to feel right, better. Right. Right. Like you're saying that this is what you this is going to help you feel better. Okay, we're going to do this. This and is what he wanted to get out of it. Didn't work. Yeah. So I mean like and you can see like the look on his face afterwards like he's so I mean I think a little just kind of like a little upset as well and a little sort of not upset with her, you know, but just kind of like... Like, oh, he knows fuck. it didn't okay. work. <laughs> yeah, he knows it didn't work, and, it, and like, that's a really shitty feeling. Yeah. Again, all I really... Another thing that I want from season five is, like, please let Raven have one good post-coital experience. Seriously. Just one, just one post-coital <laughs> moment that isn't, like, unbelievably awkward. Because she hasn't had a single nope. one. Like... Finn, she slept with once on the ground that we saw. Unbelievably awkward. Bellamy, Bellamy. unbelievably awkward. Wick, unbelievably awkward. Like, just one person where she can be smiling when they're done. (laughs) Before the end of the series. And, like, maybe for Raven's sake, not have to talk about her feelings immediately. Because that seems to be her trigger. Where she's like, please don't ask me to talk about my feelings. Whoever (laughs) sleeps with Raven next. Don't talk about feelings when you're done. Just be like, that was a pretty good orgasm, huh? You know, like. <laughs> good job, team. High five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I feel like Lindsay Morgan is just like so good in this oh, episode. And, she just like and breaks just, my heart. She, yeah, like, it's devastating because I think that she really thought that would help too. You know, right. like I think that the, the other devastating about that moment is like, it wasn't that she, that she went to Bellamy it was like disingenuous or something like I think she really hoped that that would do it you know I think she was just like all right fine like I'll just go maybe I'll just go let someone else you know there's Bellamy appreciates me Bellamy you know sort of saw me earlier Mm -hmm. maybe maybe if I tried something with him something will happen I'll feel something different and then she realizes that it doesn't work and you know you can see how difficult that is for her to sort of deal with you know right well I mean she's like it's a breakup she's trying to rebound she's trying to you know yeah put herself back together and she's told herself that if she does this then what Finn did won't hurt her you know right exactly exactly so it's like so when she when it's over and she still has all the same feelings right it's even worse to feel them because she thought that maybe they would be gone yes or they would be lessened or something and they're not yeah yeah, so, oh man, what a scene. I will say in the trash barge category of things, <laughs> um, <laughs> based on, you know, like where we cut to 
in the after scene. It seems like Raven was on top, which I like. I think that's the main character for both of them. Good job, girl. <laughs> <laughs> for those of us who like to headcanon uh, things like that. <laughs> I totally agree. Don't pretend you don't. All right, excellent, excellent. I think I meant to this to you when I was watching this earlier, you and Shosh and Britt. So, I mean, I, like, I, I genuinely ship, you know, Brave and Lark, but I think, like, this is the one episode, I think, where I really genuinely ship Braven. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the episode, I guess, where, I, another way to put it would be, like, this is the episode where I, I really see the bones of, a, of, like, a really fascinating relationship between the two of them. Right. I think, I think the show could have gone in this direction and it would have been amazing. I think so too. Yeah. And it's like, it's a little bit, you know, they, they just, they just have it, you know, like season two, they're separated from most of the first half. And then mm-hmm. they sort of, they talk on the radio, you know, um, while Bellamy is in Mount Weather, but they never really pursue like this aspect of their relationship. Season three, like they're apparently in parallel, but right? non-congruent. <laughs> Bellamy forgets Raven because... exists. Raven forgets Bellamy exists, even though yeah. they both lost and, Tina. And the events in their timelines don't seem to have any overlap whatsoever. Yeah. Like Raven doesn't even seem to know that Pike exists. And Bellamy doesn't seem to know that like the Alex Right, that Jaha exists. came like, back and started no... a cult. Like he's not at all concerned about that. Right. They're like completely separate universes until the second half of the season. Right. In season four, there's a little bit more of that. You know, the end of season, the beginning of season four, we sort of see, you know, they have, like, that the kind of, like, Brave and Lark tri- leadership triumvirate, mm-hmm. triumvirate. And then the and the end of season four, you know, we get a kind of return of this in that, you know, you, we get that sort of moment of Raven's despair about being able to save them. And the thing that turns her around is sort of Bellamy, again, giving her that sort of, like, you are amazing. I know you can solve this because you're amazing pep talk, you know, in that way that only Bellamy can. Right. He knows what she needs. Exactly. So and he can he can sort of give that to her. And then at the very end where we see, you know, the this on the arc looking back down, we sort of see that that, mm-hmm. that, that they're going to be kind of like the new pair. So, you know, I think season I four am, picks I am up a little really bit excited threads. for season five for like the... I am too. Yeah. Like, I'm really curious to see how their relationship has developed just about any direction they take it, I think I will be into it. Like, I think so too. Yeah, because like, there's just as like you said, there's just like there's so much there that was like that in the in one eleven, you know, like is there's so much potential that just gets dropped and never pursued. Mm-hmm. Well, there's such pick it up similar in characters before. in so many ways, and yeah. that they're like they have very very soft hearts, but then they're kind of like. Feelings? What? I don't have feelings. I don't want to talk about feelings. Get out of my face. I have something I have to do. Right, exactly. Like, they have very similar coping mechanisms in that respect. And I think that's just a really interesting, like, foundation for, like, interactions and relationships. I agree. And I think that's something, it's definitely something that Bellamy recognizes. You know, I think an aspect that hasn't been explored as much is how much Raven understands that about Bellamy. You know, and I think Raven does understand a lot about Bellamy. You know, so, like, I think there's, like, an interesting dynamic... They're, they're different from Belark in that, like, they don't complement each other in the same way because they are so similar, mm-hmm. but that sort of brings out really interesting... They, they understand each other in a, in a very deep but different way. Yeah. That I think is, like, really interesting to explore, which is also why I like Brave and Lark, because, like, mm-hmm. the three of them together kind of all just, like... Right, they balance each other. each other out. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so I won't be, I won't be mad at Raven and Bellamy having... 
Having teamed up to murder Monty and Imori for doing terrible (laughs) stand-up. Exactly. (laughs) You know what actually they would do, though? Like, they would murder them. They would, like, come up with, like, a schedule. Like, okay, it's your night to go to Monty and Imori's stand-up act. And I'll, you know, and and I'll be your alibi and say... Like, <laughs> yeah, like, okay, you have to go this time and, like, give my alibi about, like, there was an engineering crisis. Right. And next time I'll go and say that there was, like, I don't know, a decision-making crisis or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> they would work that out. <laughs> Murphy would be the one who is like, I'm in love with Amori, Mo- and yet I want to kill her. Right. But I feel like he'd be really like, comfortable with that. Right? And I feel like poor Harper would be the only one who found it, like, unmitigatingly hilarious. Right? Like, she, they're really yes, just playing to an it. audience of one. Like. <laughs> yes. Although, you know, honestly, I could see Echo being really into that. We know so little about That's Echo. That's true. But that is the kind of thing. Like, there's a certain kind of, you know, like, that Borscht Belt humor. It's, like, insult comic humor. You know? It's, like, really it's true. Like, very very mean and cutting and whatever like I could see Echo being really into that and then Monty finds old clips of in- Triumph the Insult Comic Dog and that's Echo's exactly <laughs> yeah yeah like like Imori gets up and does like a solid 30 minutes just like roasting Asgita and Echo would be like <laughs> rolling on the floor laughing her ass off <laughs> all right one episode we need this <laughs> yes excellent <laughs> please at Tazia Tellez yes. and uh, Louisa Dolivera <laughs> please go rogue and make that episode that webisode for us we'll write it for you for free <laughs> yeah totally totally absolutely we will we'll make that sacrifice <laughs> okay so since we are two Blark shippers here we have to talk about the Balark interaction at the beginning of this episode. Oh, because... we do. But before we do that, I do have one more thing I want to mention, which is just, you know, like when they set like the smoke house on fire or whatever, because teenage boys are the worst. I mean, like that was the <laughs> entire point of that scene is like teenage boys are disgusting yes. and the worst and they set things on fire. It is true. <laughs> and if you show any weakness around them, they will be the biggest assholes about it. Right. Relentlessly. But like. Yes. So that, and then there's that scene where Bellamy and Clark are, like, surveying the wreckage and deciding, like, who's going to go out and, like, go hunt. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. I was just, like, I was thinking about how many, like, fix there are that are just, like, season one outtakes that are basically just that. (laughs) Right? It's, like... That's true. Like, I miss panicky teenagers trying to build a society so much. (laughs) I mean, one another reason why I'm excited for season five is there is a potential for some of that, you know? Like, there's, we've got the folks up in the Ark, and then who knows what's happening in the bunker. Like, right. I'm excited for potentially just having some, like, well, shit, now we have a whole new environment. How the fuck do we build a society? Like, right. Or even just, like, we don't have enough food. Like, now right. we have to go hunting. Right. Like, or even, like, is there anything to hunt? Right. How do we get food? Just those basic, just mundane um, dilemmas. Right? And just Bellamy like, and Clark, like, trying to figure out how to lead together when they're, like, yeah. at this point, like, just barely friends. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you know, and again, like, they've been, they're, they were, like, 
you know, super close for a semester. Right. And now <laughs> it's six years six later years. and they meet in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so them having to sort of relearn each other and uh, learn how to work together again mm. is extremely exciting. Yes. But yeah. So, yeah, let's talk about that uh, scene right at the beginning. Yes. How cute it is that he, Just, like, almost walks into a tree. <laughs> it is the cutest. It's the cutest that he makes a terrible joke about, you know, like, landmines. Right? Um, Their jokes are and so she actually, bad. Their jokes are horrible and, like, so wrong, you know? And, like, but she laughs at it. Right? She thinks it's funny. And then he almost walks into a tree because he's so, like, <laughs> pleased with himself. He's like, oh, my God, she's laughing laugh. at me. She's laughing at me. Whoop, tree. <laughs> I mean, like, this is really, this episode is kind of just wall-to-wall Bob Morley hard eyes. Like, from the yes. beginning, with the clerk, you know, the scene with Clark where he walks up to her, he's just, like, constantly looking at her, you know, like, sort of constantly, like, checking in. And then with Raven, same thing. Like, it's just, like, basically con- Bellamy just wandering around looking at women going, you're the best, most amazing thing that has ever happened, and if you've forgotten that, I will tell you. Right? Well, it's like, <laughs> so this is something that's also not really necessarily based in canon, and I'm sure I've, like, yelled at you about this, like, ad nauseum. But, like, I have <laughs> this, like, kind of, like, headcanon or theory that Bellamy does not trust men in general. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that seems to be mostly borne out by canon until season three, and then he trusts, you know... Well, he's right. trusting Kane, and then he trusts Pike, and then that blows up in his face again. Right, but it's he—he he only trusts men when he does not trust himself. Mm. Ooh, that's a good point. So in season one, it's with like Shumway mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. he made a decision, right, and it turned out poorly, and now his family's going to all die or is dead. So then, you know, he takes like what he sees as his last option, and it's also when Bellamy surrounds himself with men like you know like the boys in like the first half of season one he's not friends with them he's using them right right he sees them as essentially a way to maintain control well i think it also probably because he perceives that they will be the troublemakers so if he can control them if he can keep them doing what he wants then he doesn't have to worry about them fucking things up right but at no point do you see him like asking miller for his opinion on something or like that's true. Really listening to Murphy or anyone, right? Yeah. Like, he yeah. makes decisions on his own, and it's only with Clark and then with Raven that he's, like, looking at them as, like, his equal or, like, you know, the person he can count on. He doesn't have that with men until Kane. Yeah, that's very true. And then in season and three... And with Kane, like, I mean, in some ways, with Kane because Clark isn't there. Right. Well, and Kane is... I mean, he's kind of, like, the closest you can get to a griffin woman if a griffin woman isn't around, right? Like, <laughs> well, Abby's there, but yeah, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, you know, in season three, when he turns to Pike, it's because he thinks his decisions were the wrong ones. That's a very good point. He's kind of, he is at his lowest point that he's been at since, you know, the very beginning of season one. Mm-hmm. It's more about, like, aggression than masculinity, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he only turns to that sort of like, I don't want to call it toxic masculinity because it's not that, but he only turns to that sort of aggressive, warlike version of manliness when he feels like he has no other options. Or when he, he feels at a loss. Well, I mean, it's almost like 
he doesn't even turn to that himself. Right. But in those moments, he's vulnerable to someone else making the suggestion that he turned to that, and then he does. Because it's not like he decided to, he was like, I would really like to shoot Jaha, but I don't have a gun. You know, right. Like he didn't, no, it's it was, only... It was Shumway who came to him. Right, and it's only because an he really offer. has no other choice. Right. And then with Pike, after Gina, he was upset, but it wasn't like he was sitting there being like, man, I'd really like to kill some grounders, but I guess I can't. He was just sitting there feeling shitty, and Pike comes along and says... I know how you feel. Here's how you can solve it. Here's what I'm going to do. Right. And then Bellamy goes along with his logic. So, so it isn't like he directs, he isn't like he directly turns to aggression. It's like he's vulnerable to the suggestion Mm -hmm. of of aggression because it gives him a feeling of power and control at a, at times when he feels like he lacks that that you know that control and he's sort of afraid and needs it. And if you look at you know if you think about what his life was probably like growing up on the ark, you know like what we see in Sister's Keeper, it's his mom and his sister, and the only male interactions we see are Shumway and that like creepy guard. He doesn't necessarily have like a positive male role model aside from maybe Pike. So it makes sense. Well, that- and the and the male role models that he sees are the creepy guard who abuses his power to exploit, you know, like people who are subordinate to him, particularly women. Exactly. So, which, which is, which is interesting that they, then he picks that up when he gets to the ground and he's trying to figure out how to like make himself in charge that he kind of like apes that. Right. He immediately models himself on the people he hated. Yeah. 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 But yeah, that's a really good point. So like, when he's sort of in a better place, when he's when he's trying to be the kind of like most ideal or best leader that he can be, it's it's sort of like the example of women that he turns to, mm-hmm. and like women who he relies on, you know, yeah, for yeah, yeah. advice and like as you know, kind of like his partner. And interestingly, I think they're both Clark and Raven being the kinds of examples of this. They're both women who are not especially you know, emotion, given to emotional vulnerability on their own, but who, who have been emotionally vulnerable with him or who he's been able to help. Right. He's seen them when their walls are down. Yeah, exactly. Like that, that seems to be the sort of, the sort of trigger, you know, in some ways for Bellamy is sort of like seeing that vulnerability and then like, I mean, I, I don't know. I almost feel like there's that kind of like almost Pavlovian big brother response. Right. Like you're upset. Let me make you feel better. Right. And it's not quite the same as like, it's not the same obviously as the relationship he has with Octavia because it's not like, it's not the same kind of protectiveness, but there's a sort of like, like that's how he cathects, you know, like that's how he forges that emotional mm-hmm. bond. Like he sort of like, once he sees like, Oh, you are a person who, you know, who's vulnerable, who can feel hurt. That's how he forms it's almost like that's how he forms trust. Yeah. You know, it's like, now I can trust you. I know I, now that I've seen your vulnerability. It's, it's just, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that like when he's at his best, that's who he turns to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And makes terrible jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and follows her around like a puppy dog. Oh my God. <laughs> um, you know, that opening like scene too, I thought it was interesting Sort of in the context of um, season three, which I don't know that I have actually rewatched <laughs> this episode since um, season three. I don't think I had because you know they're they're in the same way where there's like sort of there's sort of like 
pieces of Jasper in season one that you can see that they picked up on and sort of developed in Jasper's character in season three, I think you can kind of see the aspects of Bellamy that that they were at least intending to be building on for season three Bellamy. You know, in that moment, like, specifically the Bellamy, you know, whose reaction to the events of the previous week, you know, his reaction to the Grounders, um, you know, sending Murphy back with the virus and finding out that they were planning to send an army. You know, his immediate reaction is like, what I want to do is go to their village with a bunch of bombs and blow them all up. But his, that he goes to that kind of like, his immediate sort of response is that kind of like aggressive defense, you know, like, all right, like if the threat is there, I don't want to wait for it to, I don't want to wait around for them to show up and attack us. You know, if I don't have to, I want to go out and like eliminate the threat actively if I can. Right. Well, and it's also, it's a very short sighted plan. It is. Which is characteristic. I love Bellamy's plans because they're like almost always universally terrible. Like, because it (laughs) will always solve the problem that is standing immediately in front of him and then it will create like 15 more. And you know, Clark is like, okay, so we go blow up that village. Like, there's more people. Will we start another war? Yeah, which is why Clark and Bellamy are best together because, you know, Clark is a better long-term, you know, long-term strategist. So she can see the long-term strategy and say, Bellamy, okay, in order to get to here, we need to do this. We need to get this done now. And Bellamy can say, okay, here's how we do this now, you know. Right. Well, and and Bellamy can also point out when, you know, kind of like the long-term plan isn't worth the immediate cost. Exactly. Yeah. Bellamy can sort of like has a better has a better sense for the sort of details of the immediate landscape and very, you know, both literally and sort of figuratively. And he also can sort of like he he's better at connecting to and understanding the people, um, you know, the people who will, are going to have to execute these plans, you know, whereas Clark often tends to kind of look, look past that. Like she can see the forest. He can see the trees. So they need each other. So exactly. they have a kind of complete perspective. But yeah, no, definitely. Like, this is one of those things where it's like, you know, like, emotionally, like, this is an emotional reaction. You know, like, Bellamy is, Bellamy's scared and he, and he wants, you know, and like, and by this point, his, like, circle of care has expanded from just, I'll do anything to save just Octavia to I'll do anything to, to save just these kids. So he's like go fucking slay the demon, you know? Right. That's what he wants to do. I have a problem standing immediately in front of me. I'm going to kill it. And then my problem is over. Right. Exactly. But like, that is, that is a really terrible idea. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So it's good that Clark is there and is like, I really wish that we didn't have to keep killing each other. This seems really dumb. (laughs) Right. This seems seems short-sighted. Exactly. I'm still mad at, at 3A and probably always will be, but... You can see, like, you know, like, I, I, I appreciate that the decisions that Bellamy makes in 3A are not without precedent. No, they don't character. come out like, of nowhere. Yeah, the, the connections were not made in a way that worked on screen, but they mm-hmm. are there. You know, if you want to go back and reconstruct who is this Bellamy who does this thing, well, you know, the roots of that Bellamy who, who when Pike said hey, the solution to this problem is to go kill this army, and he listened and believed him. Mm-hmm. You know, the roots of that Bellamy are, are in this Bellamy who's like, I want, I want to roll into one of their villages with a bunch of those bombs that we made and just blow them all up. And I love him, but he is, you know, there's, it's not good when he is just left to do those things. His plans are garbage. <laughs> <laughs> His plans are 
garbage. I love you, Bellamy. But maybe not anymore. <laughs> you know, he's up there in space using his head like Clark told him to. I think we'll get <laughs> Bellamy is going to be better at plans in season five. I do think that's I what think it is so. going. And I'm excited to see that because I think Clark is going to be garbage at plans now. Oh, yeah. Clark is going to be totally like, I will do fucking anything, whatever seems best in this moment, if it defends Maddie. And Bellamy is going to be like, dude, I've been down this road. Like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> you are the one who taught me not to do that. <laughs> I expected to have to do this together. with Octavia, not with you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, Octavia's underground, like, eating criminals or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like, I don't, I don't actually know it's going to be one of my theories for season five is that the new sort of, like, they can't float people, but, you know, they they do have a population issue, and they might have mm-hmm. a food issue, and Octavia has to keep people, on, keep people in line, so maybe the new version of floating is being killed and eaten. Oh, my God. Cannibal Octavia. <laughs> Cannibal Octavia. <laughs> I mean, I feel, I feel like you're on to something. Yeah. It's not necessarily you know, something I, like, I want to see, but I would not be surprised if it's something we ended up seeing. I, yeah, I mean, this is, I don't say this because, like, I particularly want it because, because cannibalism is, like, a huge squick for me. Like, it makes me really nauseous. So if, if there is actually cannibalism, that's sort of one of those things where it's like, I probably will not be able to rewatch those episodes. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, I go back and forth, actually, on the, on whether or not Octavia is actually involved in it. Because I do think that Octavia is, like definitely their sort of end game leader of the new order mm-hmm. or whatever like whatever happens in this show octavia is i think going to survive she's going to be alive at the end and she's going to be like the new whatever yeah i think that would be a lot to bring people back from exactly like there's things that you can get bring people back from but i'm pretty sure that like having her in charge of a sort of like if you commit a crime i will kill you and eat you is probably not one of them so right? like there, there are redemption like... arcs and there are redemption arcs <laughs> and i don't think you can make it happen this show has pulled off some impressive redemption arcs true but i don't think even they could do that one um so yeah so i i'm sort of like that would be a fascinating path but i doubt that'll be if, if there is cannibalism in the bunker which i know is like a theory that a lot of people have mm-hmm. i don't think octavia probably octavia won't actually be involved in it maybe she's like I punishing the people who are i i i hope nobody eats anybody but it does yeah. seem like the kind of thing they might do <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a weird tangent sorry that's all right <laughs> all right is there anything that we haven't oh there's one more thing that i have in my notes which is the jamming signal because this is something that has like stuck with me like or not necessarily stuck with me but i was reminded of it in season three so right so so the implication right that I think we're supposed to draw and I know they had not yet envisioned Allie or whatever when they were writing season one so this wasn't necessarily intended right so what we're supposed to think is that the jamming signal is Mount Weather right it's a it's a clue to the viewers that there's someone else out there who has technology and that they're bad guys because they crashed the Exodus ship but when you think about it why would Mount Weather be doing that? Like, why would they be jamming anyone? Yeah. The grounders don't use technology. So what are they protecting themselves And they don't from? even know. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, Mount Weather doesn't know that anybody's in space. Right. So, like, why would they want to stop this ship from coming down? So Exactly. My theory is that it could either be, like, Mount Weather knew about Allie and set that up to kind of keep her penned in wherever she was. Ah. Or it was a grounder thing. You know, like, Becca set it up when she came down to keep Allie penned in. I was, or I was thinking, um... Becca, Becca, and or um, the um, second dawn, Cadigan, Cadigan, yeah, because Cadigan was connected to the miners, right? I think. So it's so yeah. So it could be if they knew if Becca and Cadigan knew that there were more that well that they knew that people were on the Ark, and they knew that there were more people in space, then it would make more sense for them to set up a damning signal to try to keep people. From maybe like keep hmm interesting it could be to keep the, the miners from coming back that could be and and maybe that's why the miners come back now because you know Mount Weather has been totally blown up the jamming signal whatever it is is gone right like maybe maybe they were like lost in space ooh that's interesting because like yeah the way I was thinking about it is like it could be a signal set up by like you know Becca or the first the very first survivors and then they forgot about it. And it would play into why grounders don't use technology because, yeah, yeah, you know, like it was about keeping Allie penned in. Right, right. Keeping her from getting back out and taking over again. Right, which I would really like because then it would make the grounder like superstitions about technology have like this very kind of purposeful basis right? That like, maybe it got lost, you know, people forgot that happens, you know, it's a chaotic world or whatever, but it gives them much more agency when it comes to not using technology, as opposed to just like, right, scared of it. Right, yeah, exactly. It started out with like, somebody very urgently being like, you cannot use technology, we cannot use it, you know, and it's one of those things where it's like, new generations of children, it makes makes sense that it'd be lost. Like the first generation would know why mm-hmm. but eventually one or two generations in you know people just telling their kids don't use technology or you know the boogeyman will come exactly is, you know would be would would become the message that children would hear and remember and would get passed on although originally started with like don't use technology or Allie will come you know and people the people who lived through Allie would know what Allie was exactly you know so it kind of be like becomes a legend or a superstition, but mm-hmm. it started as a real thing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, that was always what I thought it was going to be. And that's always what I wanted it to be, because it makes the most sense, mm-hmm. you know? But yeah, like, so the jamming signal, I always wondered if it was tied into Allie in some way. Like, or if they could yeah. retcon it into being tied into Allie. Somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I think it would make sense, you know? And like Claire and I have talked about, we always wanted... You know, we always, we've always sort of wanted more backstory about Cadigan and mm-hmm. Becca. And, and if, and in, and, you know, if Cadigan is a cult leader, you know, it also seems like the kind of thing like a cult leader would tell people not to use technology, but not explain to them why. You know, if it's like exactly. a deliberate superstition introduced by Cadigan to control people. And if they've got this jamming signal that's keeping her penned in, then people don't need to know about that. Right, exactly. Uh, it's like a way for, you know, so he's like deliberately controlling people because that's what he does. But it would be interesting if it turns out that there's like, there is some 
some sort of connection between that and why the miners come back when they do. Like why they came right. back now as opposed to why didn't they come back any other time in this 97 years, you know? So, yeah. Uh, I can't wait for the trailer. We actually I know. Have I'm psyched. Information <laughs> to go on. Um, all right. So I think that wraps us up for 111. Thank you so much for being here again, Elizabeth. Um, do you want to tell folks where to find your various writings on the interwebs? Yes. So you guys can find me on Twitter at Leave Me Arone. Um, but I also have <laughs> um, a writing Twitter that is E Davis Romance um, because I have a book coming out on this Tuesday. So October 10th, it will already be available by the time this podcast is posted. Um, so it is called Bewitching Desire. It is a romantic novella about modern witches with useless powers. And it is the second in the series. <laughs> um, so yeah, this one's number two. Number one is called Conjuring Affection and they are available on Amazon. So they're eBooks. They're super cheap. They're $2.99 US. And if you guys like what I write, then I would appreciate it if you could go out and purchase my book. So thank you. And I can I can vouch for um, I read the first one, Conjuring Affection. It is delightful in every way. You will not <laughs> regret your purchase. And <laughs> so you should definitely go buy both of them and enjoy them. Um, especially if you are a fan of Elizabeth's fic. Like this is totally the same awesome stuff. Um, just with new characters. And if you want to picture them in your head you know, as played by some of our favorite actors, then go ahead, right? right? Like, I won't stop fun thing about reading I definitely is, won't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, the great thing about reading is that the people you're reading about can look like anyone you want. It's all in exactly. your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> Just use your imagination. Just use your imagination. <laughs> I should use this, use this as, like, a selling point for the English major more often, honestly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unlike movies, your characters can look like anything you want. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. And um, we will be back in a couple of weeks-ish. We're kind of off schedule, so, but like a couple of weeks-ish with, uh, what is it next? 112, We Are Grounders Part 1. And I'm super excited for that one because of all the Bellamy feels. Oh, that's such a good one. all the... Murphy oh. me feels it is such a good one such a good one I'm like I'm stoked um all right so thank you so much Elizabeth and thank you all for listening and bye bye